fitting that uh, I'm following Doug Harrison coming up here. A few weeks ago, he talked about a, uh, a youth lock-in that they, they had recently with the youth group. And uh, the sermon I want to give you, I first heard following a youth lock-in in Lawton, Oklahoma. I am since banned from participating in youth lock-ins in Lawton, Oklahoma, uh, mainly by the kids because I clicked off safe and made them clean up about four or six o'clock in the morning. But anyway, long story. On 6 October 1973, 1,300 Syrian tanks crossed over into the Golan Heights, attacking Israel as part of what's come to be known today as the Yom Kippur War, the Ramadan War, the October War, whatever you want to call it, of those three. The Israeli forces were only able to muster 180 tanks against them during the first 24 hours of the fight. Reserves were called up and rushed to the front as fast as they could, but the, those 180 tanks were getting obliterated up there. Calls for help went out over the radio nets. Help, help! I'm being overrun! Tank companies normally of uh, 14 vehicles were down to one or two tanks. And back on the, on the radio came the reply, a cool, calm voice, Task Force Vika on the way. And you're like, Task Force Vika? What's that? Task Force Vika was Zvika Greengold, his crew, and their single tank. And when they showed up, they would link up with that other tank, organize them, and released such a savage attack against the Syrians that they actually destroyed all the tanks that were there or pushed them back. And he proceeded to do this for 20 hours. The Syrians didn't know what they were up against. All they could hear, they would intercept the radio signals coming from the, from the, uh, from the Israeli tank companies that were fighting there. You know, what's going on? There's this task force Vika we've never heard about. Must be some special forces tank units that the Israelis are able to muster. Well, when they would hear Task Force Vika on the radio, they actually would pull their forces back. The Syrians had anticipated it would take 24 hours to take the Golan Heights back. Zvika Greengold bottom 20 hours until the reserves could get there. They actually made it and held off the Syrians. That night, he fought from six different tanks. Several of them were Israeli, and several of them were actually Syrian that he'd stole from the Syrians. He'd captured them and fought from them. To this day, he's known as the hero of Israel. When I took my tour over there, he's one of the two names they mentioned to us. He's got one of the highest honors as a national hero of Israel. Well, we love the underdog, especially us here in America. We've grown up with it. This morning, I'm reading in my Moody Bible, uh, Today in the Word, Devotions. Remember the little engine that could? You can do it. Or still, those of us who've grown up in the, the 70s and 80s, Still remember the chants of Rocky, Rocky, or even a Rudy, Rudy. We all love the underdog. Well, today we're going to cover an underdog. We're going to talk about a guy named Ehud in Judges chapter 3. And we're going to look at how God uses an available man, mixing with his gifts that he can give him, to bring glory to himself and redeem his people. Before we get into the text, I'd like to give you just a brief overview of the book of Judges. Judges chapter 1, or the book of Judges takes place from about 1380 to 1050 BC. The linkage to the Pentateuch, there's a big linkage between the Pentateuch and Joshua of what happens. There's a lot of promises that God makes to them, and they accept, 
And there's a lot of things that happen in the book of Joshua that link in with what's going on, as you'll see. Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, God makes a promise with them. You can either follow my commands and enjoy your time in the land and be blessed, or you can choose not to follow them and you'll be thrown from the land. Well, judges, there's a downward spiral. And that spiral is as follows. If I can get up on the screen behind me there. First, you have sin. Israel's going to sin. They're going to disobey God in some form or fashion. Then they're going to find themselves subject to another people in servitude. An outsider's going to come in and either make them subject in the land they're in, or later on, you see in Babylon, they'll get thrown out. There'll be supplication. Israel will realize their mistake, and they'll come back and say, we're wrong, God. We need you. We need your help. And then God will provide a deliverer and a means of salvation for them. And then the land will have silence, rest, or I believe I put siesta up there just because I didn't think silence fit too well with the Bible knowledge commentaries terms they had there. Each time this comes up, the Israeli nation gets a little bit more deprived, a little bit worse. However, each time God brings a redeemer in and they bring them back to him in the land. In Judges chapter 1, you begin with an unfulfilled conquest. Israel was supposed to take a huge chunk of land, if you read back in the Old Testament. Basically from the Euphrates to the Mediterranean, and then from north where Lebanon is now, down to the Negev. And they never really took that. They only ended up with the hill country. There's huge gaps of space out there they never were able to conquer. In Judges chapter 2, the angel of the Lord comes down and tells Israel, Hey, you're going to be disobedient. I can see it now. It's going to happen. And they agree, and they know it's going to happen, but they accept it. And then in, in chapter 3, the first part, the cycle begins. Now we've come to Judges chapter 3, and the passage today is from uh, 3, 12 through 30. Turn with me, if you will, to this passage. And I'm just going to take this scripture chunk at a time. I'm not going to let you see it all at once beforehand. I'm going to give it to you just a piece at a time so you can kind of explain it as we go through. And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek and went and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. And we see the cycle of sin start right off the bat. And it's mentioned twice because it's important. Israel did evil and Israel did evil. God wants to bring it out as a point. Don't do this. Well, God uses foreigners to come in and to discipline his own people to make good on the promises that he gave them. Now, Moabites, Ammonites, and Amalekites, what's the relationship here? Looking at the Old Testament, Moab and Ammon were descendants of Lot and his incestuous relationship with his two daughters. So it's like, okay, that's where those two come from. So we're dealing with relatives here and a little family feud going on. Amalek was the uh, grandson of Esau. So going back even a little bit further, Joseph's bro- or Jacob's brother Esau. So again, we have family and we have neighbors. East, or, uh, Amalek was down in the Negev, and Moab was just east of the Dead Sea, and Ammon was just north of the Dead Sea on the east side of the Jordan River. Well, we've got a problem additionally in the text right off the bat. What's the problem? The text mentions the city of Palms. What's the city of Palms? The city of Palms is the city of Jericho. 
Well, those of you who know your Old Testament know that in Joshua chapter 6, Jericho is destroyed in verses 20 and 22. Joshua puts a curse on Jericho in verses 26. Basically saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds this city Jericho. He shall lay its foundations with its firstborn, and with his youngest he shall set up its gates. Well, that happens in 1 Kings 16, when Hiel lays the foundations for Jericho and then hangs the gates for Jericho, and he loses his son Abiram and his son Segub when he does both of those two items. Now, if Jericho was destroyed in 1406 B.C. and it's rebuilt sometime between 874 B.C. and 853 B.C., I've got a problem because just 100 years into that time frame, I've got some kind of a city out at the City of Palms, roughly 1309 B.C. Well, there's a couple possibilities for this. One, that portions of the city, but not all of it, were rebuilt, i.e. the wall wasn't rebuilt, certain buildings that were necessary to be called a city were there or weren't there. Um, another was there's another city nearby. They didn't build on the original site, so they don't call it the same city. Regardless, there's an oasis there, and it's a strategic crossing point of the Jordan River. As we'll learn later, the fords of the Jordan are there. So something was going to be built there somewhere along the line. It's a Jericho, no, but we're going to call it that, and it's called that in the text. Now, there's some significance to the defeat of by Moab, the Ammonites, and the Amalekites of Israel. The first part is that Israel had already defeated these folks twice before. Everyone remember Balaam and his talking donkey? Well, Balaam's donkey or Balaam was told to curse Israel and three or four times came back and said, No, I'm not going to curse them. God told me not to. And that was considered defeat number one. The second time for when Israel defeated Moab, Israel and Moab intermarried. And they determined and some of the Israelites said this is wrong. God said it was wrong. And they defeated the Moabites that were out there. So because of intermarriage and because of a request for a curse, Israel had already defeated the Moabites twice in the past. So the children of Israel, in verse 14 we learn, the children of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. And we see the spiral, in the spiral digression, the servitude portion of it. Well, Israel calls out to the Lord. In verse 15, we pick up, When the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. By him, the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Ehud made himself a dagger, and it was double-edged and a cubit in length, and fastened it under his clothes to his right thigh. Here we have the introduction of our underdog. Now, I probably need to start at the end of his description and work my way back to help things make sense. Ehud's left-handed, which fits, if you know your Bible, with the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin in Judges 20 is going to be identified as having 700 guys who were lefties who could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and never miss. So the tribe of Benjamin was already known as lefties. But that's not quite what the text is saying here. You see... Actually, the translation was bound in the right hand. 
He's a lefty not out of hereditary, but he's a lefty because physically he couldn't use his right hand. It was tight. It was closed. He had no use of his right hand. Similar to uh, what Bob Dole has today. Well, that's okay if you know what Benjamin means. Who can tell me what the name Benjamin means? Kelly, you can't tell. You can't say it on this one. So, who knows what the name Benjamin means? Son of my right hand. So it's okay. He doesn't have the use of his right hand because God is his right hand. So there's also an additional link to the land. I get the uh, the map, please. I think it's up behind this. There you have the, the land that belongs to the tribe of Benjamin, roughly from Jerusalem on the uh, the western side, all the way down to the fords of the Jordan. So you get a bit of a, a picture of where Benjamin owned and where they stood in the land of Israel. They were a small tribe, a small people, and that's where they were. And additionally, with Jericho, there was a link because that's where Mo- Eglon, the king of Moab, was working out of. Well, you got a one-armed man of a subjected people having to give tribute to a foreign king. He has no use of his right hand, but that's okay because God is his right hand and he's got a plan and he's a willing candidate for God. Now, from the Middle East... Power is everything in the Middle East. I learned this lesson well last year in Iraq. For the tribal sheikhs, you never want to show weakness. Having to take tribute to another king is a sign of weakness, and you have to do it. It's a loss of wasta, if you will, from the uh, Arabic language. You don't want to lose wasta in front of them. The whole Arab community, if you will, all men are looking to be someone like Tony Soprano. They want the power. They want to take charge. And there can only be a few of them, but everyone's trying to be that. Well, Israel had, if you will, Benjamin had lost their wasta, and, and they were subject to Eglon, and as well as the nation of Israel. But that's okay, because we got just the man to bring that back. Who was the last guy you'd expect to go in and try and do something imposing like Ehud's about to do? Him. I wouldn't expect him. He's a small guy, one-armed. I wouldn't expect that. But God chose him just the same. He's an underdog, and he's going on a suicide mission. Now, the weapon. I need to define this a little bit. The weapon is a cubit in length. And for a cubit, it's normally the distance from your elbow to the tip of your fingers. The words here used is the only time it's used in the Old Testament, and it's called the grasped. So the cubit length on this knife... It's from the elbow to the grasp length, which would be your knuckles. So it's a little bit shorter. Let's do the math on this. I measured my uh, my from hip to thigh or hip to my knee. It's 18 inches or one cubit. Remember, Ehud's a small guy. I went to Kelly, measured hip to hip to her knee, 14 inches. You get the picture. He's made something particular for what he needed for this mission to hide it on his body. It was the grasp length of the cubit. You put that in. Just for example in size and for reference, I brought my K-bar in today. That's 12 inches there, so he made something just a little bit longer. And we'll come back to this here in a minute. 
Well, next we come to salvation. In the text it reads, So he brought tribute from, to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. And when he had finished presenting his tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back from the stone images that were at Gigal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. He said, Keep silence. And all who attended him went out. So Ehud came to him. Now he was sitting upstairs in his cool private chamber. Then Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. So he arose from his seat. Then Ehud reached in with his left hand, took out the dagger with, from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. Even the hilt went in after the blade, for he did not draw the dagger out of his belly. And his entrails came out. Now we learn a little bit more about Eglon. He's a fat guy. All right. His name actually means young bull. And so he had taken over Israel and he got fat, dumb, and happy in sitting as king in that land. He'd gotten lazy. But there's another lesson in this, and you see it throughout the Bible, and you saw it in the story I started off the sermon with. Israel is always smaller than its enemies. God's, the enemies of Israel are always bigger. You see here in Eglon, you saw it in the story earlier I gave on Syria coming across in sheer numbers. You see it with the giants in the land that the, the Hebrews were fearing when they came in. You see it with Goliath. You see it with, with uh, all the empires that came and took over. Israel was small. They had to trust in God. And that was the point. Eglon was big. Ehud small. And it symbolizes the enemies of Israel and the people of Israel. Well, this also sets the stage for what's about to come, as I've already covered in some of the verses. But we need to cover something else, too. These stone images at Gigal, what were these? Were they idols? Were they graven images? Sculpted stones? All of those are in different translations. Or is there something more to them that we need to look at? Let's go to the place where they're at. They're at Gagal. What's significant about Gagal? Turn with me, if you will. Put your finger there in Judges chapter 3 and turn with me to Joshua chapter 4. I'm going to give you just a little bit of lead in on this. Joshua chapter 4 is before they've taken the city of Jericho. Israel's crossing over into the promised land for the first time. God stops the Jordan further upstream. The Israelites cross over on dry land. One of the things that's happened as they cross over was God commanded them to pick up one person from each tribe to pick up a stone from the river as they go through. So one member from each tribe picked up a large stone as they went through and he carried it with them on through. And I'm going to pick up in Joshua chapter 4, verse 19 through 24. Now the people came up from the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they camped in Gagal, on the east border of Jericho. Now those twelve stones they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up in Gagal. And then he spoke to the children of Israel, saying, When your children ask their fathers in the time to come, saying, What are these stones? Then you shall let your children know, saying, Israel crossed over this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over, as the Lord your God 
did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed over, that all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Let me repeat that last verse. That the, all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Let me give you just a little sermon in a sermon here, if I, if I may. Old Testament survey, first class I had back in March, April, early May. One of the, the book we had we required to read was uh, Jesus Through the Old Testament by J.H. Wright. He's a Ph.D. over in England. The overstated premise, if you will, is looking at different pictures of Jesus or different views of Jesus as he's seen in the Old Testament. The underlying premise, and if you look at the author on, you know, you Google the author on there, the underlying premise was that the nation of Israel, their mission always was evangelism to the nations. It was never, they were never an end to themselves. It's not that we have the law, we've got all we want, you know, wave your nose at someone else. It was God gave them law so that they would be a better people, so that they would be a witness to the world around them, to the Gentiles to bring them to know God. And they were not an end unto themselves. Well, I digress. Well, Ehud's setting up... Let's go back to, uh, to Judges now. Ehud's setting up the deception now with a secret message. He's got the knife. He's already got the, the deception piece going that he looks unbecoming. He's not the kind of guy you think is going to assassinate a king. All right? He's only got one arm that's usable. But he's got to get the king alone or at least in a position where he can use it to, to run out, you know, to run from front to back here in, in the sanctuary. He ain't going to make it. There's plenty of soldiers around him. Well, he's got to get the king alone. So he tells him, King, I got a secret message for you. And in essence, he does. The message is your kingdom's about to end and I'm going to do it. But he's got to get the king alone. Well, Eglon, like I said, fat, dumb, and happy, in Jericho, he's thinking, I'm secure. I've got 10,000 guys around me. This little Jew, one-armed man, I've got nothing to worry about. Come on, come up to my, my cool private chamber. Let's talk. And he sends everyone out. And so it's just Ehud and Eglon at this point. And Eglon's sitting down. And you kind of wonder, there's a bunch of little princes in here, and they're key because they set the stage for what's going on. He's sitting down at this point. Still not a place where I would want to thrust my knife into somebody and to kill him. So Ehud needs to get him in a position to do this. Well, Ehud says, I have a message for God from you. And Ehud uses the word Elohim. He does not take the word or the name of the Lord in vain. He does not use Jehovah or Yahweh at this point. He uses Elohim, the generic plural name for God. And so in, in his deception, he does not sin. And Ehud basically, um, let me back up. In the military, we have a tradition that when you read an award or you read a promotion citation, it's from a higher authority. So you always start it off with attention to orders. And everyone in the room rises or they come to attention and then you read the citation because it is from a higher authority. It appears from this text that tradition dates way back long before any of the United States or any of the other militaries really in the world were here. Back to the Hebrews and the Moabites. Because Eglon, or Ehud tells Eglon, I've got a message from God for you. 
And Aegon, realizing that this message is from a higher authority, comes to attention and stands up. Well, it sets the stage perfectly. His opponent or his target is right where he needs him. Ehud drops down, pulls out the knife from his right leg with his left hand, thrusts forward with all his might, and leaves the blade within Aegon's body. Now, a little bit of science about the knives. All modern combat knives have what is called, Corey, we got what's called a blood groove. My K-bar has it on here. It's a little groove on both sides of the knife. And what this does, and while I may be a bit gory with it, it's going to explain the physics here of what happened. When you stick someone with a knife without a blood groove, flesh closes around it, and you can't pull it out, especially a knife of this size. There's a suction behind the blade. You cannot pull that blade out without a lot of force. Now, remember, we got a one-armed man. He's not going to be able to pull out a blade without a blood groove. So what that groove does is allow air to pass through between the blade and flesh. I know I'm, I'm a little gory here, but again, it explains what happened in the text. He just left the knife in there. He didn't have a groove on that knife. There was no way that knife was coming out. With all the force he put on it, behind it, as big as Aegon was and as big as that knife was, it was going in one direction, in. Now, something did come out. Something did come out. And I have had people tell me, because again, this is the second time I've heard this sermon and I've played the tape to others. Um, something did come out. And I've been told that it is too gory to talk about this kind of stuff in church. Folks, the Bible can sometimes be a graphic book. And that's just the way God laid it out. So we got to take it as is. And God's going to use this gore here in a minute to help get Ehud out of trouble. Now, we pick up in verse 23. Ehud went out on the porch and shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. When he had gone out, Aegon's servants came to look, and to their surprise, the doors to the upper room were locked. So they said, he's probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber. So they waited until they were embarrassed, and still he had not opened the door to the upper room. Therefore, he took the key, opened them, and there was their master fallen dead on the floor. But Ehud escaped while they delayed and passed beyond the stone images to escape to Sarah. This was a suicide mission that didn't turn out to be a suicide mission. Ehud thought this was one way. I'm going in, I'm going to get killed coming out of this, and now all of a sudden, I'm alone with the king and no one knows that I just did this. Maybe I can get out. The mighty hand of God had come down and provided an opportunity for him to evade and escape. He had crushed the enemy's head and he was ready to move out. He locked the doors. He headed to the mountains of Ephraim, but first he went through Gagal. And I'll hit on this in just a second. It's key in this text. Now, if you are from the same mold as someone like James Reese or myself, these next verses are precious indeed. The actual text, if you put it in New American Standard, is he must be covering his feet. Now, when I think of this, can you get the next slide, please? Maybe. There we go. I think of these two yokels as the two assistants coming to the door and just 
think through in my mind what Tim Conway and Don Knotts would have gone through. Woo! Was that you? No, 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 no. That wasn't me. I was like, must be eggy. Ah. Uh, what did he have for dinner last night? And you can just see the banter going back and forth, you know. Oh, it's your turn to empty the pot. Um, if you were like me and you grew up with a couple of honorary uncles, and at Thanksgiving time, it was like, where'd Dan go? And they said, to the throne. Now you know where the term comes from. He's in there on the throne. As well as the ensuing one that always followed when the next uncle went in. Woo! Somebody died in here. If you were wondering where that came from, now you know. Well, if you laughed at that, you're supposed to. The Hebrews people, when they read this, the Jews were supposed to, the whole intent of this is to make them laugh. It's to show them how silly God's enemies really were. While they had been in captivity, while they had been defeated, look at the silly king over here that now he's just laying there on the floor and the fun and the embarrassment that comes out after that. Well, the mighty hand of God had provided a way to escape. It bought Ehud some time. While they were waiting for the king to finish relieving himself, he was able to evade and escape back to, uh, really, Ephraim or Israel. Now, we revisit the stones. We talked about them earlier. These sculpted stones, these stone images, if you will. And I tend to think from reading this passage, it is the second time, these these stones here are probably those 12 stones that came out of the Jordan for two reasons. One, he didn't destroy them as he went back by or knock them over. It doesn't say anything about that. And two, just like in the first time, he spurred to action after he sees them. He moves out, goes to the mountain Ephraim, and as we'll see here in a second, calls in the cavalry. Verse 27, we continue. And it happened that when he arrived, he blew the trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim, and the children of Israel went down with him to the mountains, and he led them. Then they said to them, Follow me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan, leading to Moab, and did not allow anyone to cross over. And at that time they killed about 10,000 men of Moab, all stout men of valor, and not a man escaped. Now, Ehud goes back into the mounds of Ephraim, the high points of Israel, and he grabs a trumpet and sounds the call. But it's not just any trumpet. He grabs a shofar. If you look in, the shofar, by definition, was the trumpet that they used, the ram's horn, that they used to, to assemble the army. When you hear that, get everyone together, because the land's about to return to its rightful owners, the Jews. So he uses the shofar. He blows it. He gets them to come. And he gives credit to where credit is due. He could have easily said, Look, I've killed the king of Moab. Let's go get the rest of them. But he didn't. And too often I'm guilty of doing stuff like that. But what he said was, the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. And it was true. He gave credit to where credit is due. The mighty hand of God was once again at work as they assembled the army and moved east. Now, those of you who remember back to Desert Storm back in 1990, 1991, remember Colin Powell got up 
at a press conference and someone asked him, what's your plan to defeat the Iraqi army in Kuwait? He said, real simple, I'm going to cut it off and I'm going to kill it. And those of you who remember watching CNN shortly thereafter, again, the whole highway of death, and anybody trying to flee it, uh, Kuwait back to Iraq, they didn't have land navigation principles. They just used the roads. So it made Pickens pretty easy. There was a turkey shoot. Well, what happens here is no different. The battle at the fords. The fords of the Jordan is the only place that they can get from the land of Israel back into the land of Moab. Ehud knows this, Israelites know this, and that's where they head first. They don't go directly to Jericho and fight them. They cut them off from their support. What I would call a choke point or in military terms, a target of area interest where I can most efficiently kill them. And that's what they did. 10,000 men, one day, wiped them all out. And these were stout guys, as it says in the text. Well, final note on Jericho. Remember we had that problem. The 10,000 men here is key. And I think, Corey, you're going to, to Camp Fallujah? Okay. Camp Fallujah, while technically not a town, holds about nine to 10,000 folks on any given day. It's a combat outpost is what we're kind of talking about here. Um, those of you, it had a strategic location. It had the oasis. It was near the river. You could plant crops there. You could grow them. And then, it, if you will, if those of you have ever played Risk in your life, Jericho is that one property in, in Africa that if you own everything in South America, you want to own so they can't come through and attack you. Okay, that's the, that's the equivalent of what Jericho was for the Moabites. In verse 30, we conclude with the text. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. And when you are right with God and doing what you're supposed to be doing, there is rest. What can we learn from a one-armed man in a 33, 3,400-year-old text? First, be faithful. In the downward spiral of Judges, the problems always start with Israel's unfaithfulness. Even with the stones as a reminder of the mighty hand of God, Israel still did evil. Israel wasn't immune to sin and doing evil, and neither are we today. Be faithful to your calling. Two, be quick to repent. Israel waited 18 years before crying out to the Lord. It didn't have to be that long. As Neil preached a couple weeks ago, come to your senses. Come running back to your father. Don't wait 18 years. Figure it out. Three, be available. The book of Judges has a bunch of less than... uh, Perfect people, if you will say, whom God desires for his purposes. Little one-armed Ehud was available for God's use, and when the time came, he was ready. Like Ehud, we need to be available for God's use as well. Number four, your limitations will be met by God's strengths. Ehud had a crippled right arm, but it became a tool for God's purposes. God used it for a deception to help return the land. In the New Testament, Paul talks about his weaknesses in 2 Corinthians 12. Jesus' comment to Paul was, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And then in verse 10, Therefore I take pleasure in your infirmities, or take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. 
For when I am weak, then am I strong. Number five, pray, work out as many of the details as you possible, give it all you've got, and trust in God to work out the rest. And I use rest there as almost a play on words. God worked out the rest of the details for Ehud and got him out of there. He allowed him to escape and evade. But he also worked out the ensuing 80-year rest that followed. So God will work out the rest. Have faith in the God of the stones and in his mighty hand. Those stones were to serve as a reminder to all nations of the mighty hand of God. And I say this, I just kind of caution myself in saying this, but remember the stones are a reminder and not so much, or not to be thought of as an idol. Seven, there's a lot of comparisons here between Ehud as a savior for the people and Jesus Christ today as a, as a savior. Ehud's a little s savior. Jesus Christ is a big s savior. He, Ehud redeemed Israel from subjection to, subjection to Moab. Jesus Christ redeemed us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the inheritance of God as promised. God has promised. Ehud, after Ehud uh, completed the attack, the land had rest. We have rest today in Christ. Ehud's a Benjaminite. He's the son of, son of my right hand. And as we sang earlier, Christ sits at the right hand of God. Christ, Ehud said, follow me. Christ says, follow me. Ehud gives credit to God. Christ is God. Well, that's it. A 3,400-year-old story with an underdog and a big God with a mighty right hand who will help his people when they turn to him. Now, some of you may be asking, Tom, why did you choose this text? Why are, why are we studying this? Well, it goes back to my comment with Doug and the youth earlier. I had heard of a guy down in Texas who's a preacher, and so the following Sunday after that youth meeting and a birthday ball for the Marine Corps that went awry, um, I drove down to hear this preacher down in Texas that weekend. And this was his, this was his sermon, the text he talked about. I grew up under persuasion of Wesley, if you will, and uh, I didn't hear anything like this, at least text explained like this. And this guy had a Dallas Seminary moniker on his name. I said, this guy knows the Bible. He is taking me to school right now and understanding it. There must be more of these guys out there. So when Kelly and I got to California, we let our fingers do the walking through the yellow pages, and we found a guy named Arch Rutherford here in Coast Bible Church. I have since learned that it's not just the Dallas moniker. we got some great preachers that have come through here. Fred Eaton. We've had, uh, we got Neil now. All of them are outstanding preachers, and they explain the Word of God. And it's just a joy to sit in here and listen to it week in and week out. Those of you who are members, you know this already. I'm not saying anything new to you. But if you're new here today, I pray that this text would affect you like it did me. Kelly and I are here. We, ch- we chose this church because of texts like this. And guys explaining it, and who could explain it? And if you're new here, if you're a visitor this morning, there's folks here that can do that over time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for these 18 verses. An obscure judge, an obscure tribal leader, in a normally not talked about book of the Bible. 
Father, he didn't have a right hand, but he trusted in you and in your mighty right hand. Help us today to do the same, to be available to your calling and to trust in your mighty right hand. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.